Well, this is Rob Behrens welcoming you to Radio Ombudsman in lockdown and wishing you a happy new year. Now, because of the pandemic, I am in a sunlit mill bank overlooking the House of Commons in London. But my co-presenter, Nick Bennett, who is the Public Service Ombudsman in Wales, is also in Wales. You're very welcome, Nick. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Rob. And our very special guest today is Mr. Will Powell, who's also in Wales. Mr. Powell, thank you very much for joining us. It's an honour that you've joined the programme. Well, thank you very much for the invitation, uh, Mr. Behrens and Mr. Bennett. Now, Mr. Powell, your much-loved son, Robert Darren Powell, died on the 17th of April 1990, when he was just 10 years old. Of course, it's every parent's worst nightmare to lose a child. But your grief was exacerbated when you learned that the health authority admitted liability for the failure to diagnose Robbie's Addison's disease. And that is what the subject of this podcast today is about. And we want to hear from you about what happened both before Robbie died and after he died, and what we can learn from this dreadful incident. But before we get into that, could you just tell us a bit about yourself and your own background? Well, I was born in Glasgow in 1953. I didn't go to school much, and I left school when I was 14, and the only qualification I had was a truancy card. I hadn't been a scholar at all and that wasn't the fault of the education authority that was my fault because the environment in which i lived when i left school went on to be a motor mechanic and a plasterer and got married to diane and we had three beautiful sons when did you move to wales in 1968 when i was 15. my dad was welsh and my dad actually had the house from his family that i live in today my father was born in the house that i live in and it was a family house that my father purchased very cheaply from his two brothers and sister. In in terms of the values that were instilled upon you when you were very young, what in particular did you inherit, do you think? Well, from my parents, I learned to tell the truth, be honest, and really admit when you're wrong. And I can always remember my mother telling me when I did something wrong as a child, that if your friend asked you to jump in the river, would you jump in the river? And that's just how we were brought up. We were, I mean, 1953 when I was born. I mean, it wasn't that long after the war. People didn't have money. And Glasgow was quite a poor area, as you will know. So we just brought up with good values. And my mother worked very hard. She had three jobs at one time. And my father worked as well as a chauffeur. Just ordinary working class people. Well, extraordinary working class people, I think. Nick, do you want to come in here? Yes, thank you, thank you Rob. Mr Powell... Coming back to your family's experience, could you talk us through what happened with Robbie? Right, well, as I said, Robbie was one of the, the, the youngest of her three children. In 1989, just before he was uh, 10 years old, he became ill. He was dehydrated, vomiting and had abdominal pain. He was rushed into Morrison Hospital on the 5th of December 1989. We were told that he'd arrived just in time. Unknown to us then, he had Addison's disease, which is a condition that invariably results in death without treatment. This disease was suspected. Uh, The ACTH test uh, was ordered, but we were not informed of the test. 
or of the suspicion of Addison's disease. In fact, my wife was told it was gastrointestinal arthritis, when in fact it couldn't have been. Robert was discharged from the hospital after being in there for four days. He'd lost a third of his body weight. Uh, he looked like a child from a concentration camp. He was so thin. And that is a symptom with Addison's. You become dehydrated. You lose your blood pressure. And that results in a heart attack, which can be fatal. But as I said earlier on, it's treatable. So five weeks later, we have an outpatient's appointment with uh, the pediatrician, Dr. Forbes. And he... Uh, I didn't go because I was working. My wife took Robbie on her own. Dr. Forbes couldn't believe how well he looked because he'd now gained his weight. He'd gone from 21 kilograms to 27.2, which was quite a big jump. And he just said, you look wonderful, boy. I can't believe you're the same child we saw in December. And my wife asked him, was it gastroenteritis? And he said, yes, it was. And he made no reference whatsoever to the suspicion of Addison's disease or the need for the test, which he had decided at that time, obviously not to do the test. And yet he couldn't eliminate Addison's disease because he, there was other tests that he could have done and he didn't. So they couldn't eliminate Addison's and that's the part that my wife and I can't understand. It was a failure not to tell us about the suspicion and the test and not to put us on notice of the fact that Robert could still have it. As far as we were concerned, Robert gastroenteritis caused by a throat infection. It's not um, an illness that is recurrent. I mean, it can happen again, but it's not something that you have because you've got an underlying problem. It's because it's a problem that can arise at any time if you eat affected food or you drink something that's contaminated. But in any event, Robert was fine up until the beginning of April. And one thing I have to mention to you, sorry, is that the hospital did write to the general practitioners and they told them that Robert was suspected of Addison's disease and that he needed the ACTH test. Now, I know that because I saw the letter after death, and the letter actually had information given to relatives who need ACTH test. So that was post-death. So up until April, and when Robert became ill, we knew nothing about the Addison's or the test. So we took Robert to the health centre. He began to vomit. He wasn't feeling well. He was losing a little bit of weight. Because he nearly died in the December, my wife and I panicked because we'd never experienced anything like that. So I, to reassure my wife, I said, I'll take Robbie down to the health centre. The GP they saw on this occasion, which was the 2nd of April, 1990, was the actual GP who'd admitted Robbie to hospital the previous December when Addison's disease had been suspected. As I understand it from a subsequent statement, he didn't read Robert's medical records and was therefore unaware that Addison's disease had been suspected or that he needed an ACTH test. The suspicion and the test hadn't been flagged up in Robert's GP notes for any subsequent GP to know of the suspicion and how Robbie's life was at risk. He just said he couldn't find anything wrong with him and I took Robbie home. Robbie was sent to school because I'd been given the all clear and then on the 5th of April, he was sent home. On the 6th of April, I took him to see a GP down the health centre for the second time. She apparently didn't look at the notes either, as she admitted in her subsequent statement. She examined Robert and said she couldn't find anything wrong, which I again accepted. Robbie became weaker and weaker by the day. 
And on the 10th of April, we tried to encourage Robbie to eat something as he hadn't been eating. He ate some fish, peas and chips and sadly vomited it all back off his plate. We then uh, decided that both my wife and I would take Robbie to the health centre on the 11th of April, which we did. This doctor did read the medical notes. He was aware that Addison's was suspected. He was aware that the ACTH test had been requested and not done. Uh, he prescribed the Oralite for Robbie's vomiting. And he said he would refer Robbie immediately back to the paediatrician at Morrison Hospital where Addison's had been suspected. Although this doctor was aware that Addison's disease uh, invariably results in death and that any minor illness can precipitate an Addisonian crisis, which could be fatal, the doctor didn't tell my wife or I of Robbie's life being at risk. Robert continued to deteriorate. So on the Sunday, the 6th of April, I telephoned for a home visit. The doctor said to bring him down to the community hospital as this was a Sunday and he would see him there. I carried Robbie from his bed because he was bed bound. And I put him into the car. I then drove him to the local hospital, which was a mile from my home. I carried him into the hospital, took him into the consultation room. He was examined now by this GP. He thought Robert could have glandular fever and decided to prescribe amoxicillin for his condition. I gave him a full history of everything that happened and that Robert had been referred back to the hospital. By this time, Robert was losing quite a lot of weight. The doctor didn't check Robbie's blood pressure and later said that he wasn't dehydrated, even though he was weak and clearly had lost weight. We just carried him back to the car and we took him home. The following day, which was the 16th of April, Robert started to vomit froth. So we called the GP out again. A fourth GP came out that day. He looked at Robert and decided he wanted to do a blood sugar test. He went to his car and then came back shortly later saying that his test equipment was out of date. So he wasn't able to provide the test. We asked him to admit Robbie to hospital, but he said there was no need. But if the child deteriorated or vomited, he would admit to him if we call. The doctor the previous day had ordered blood tests for Robbie and had asked us to come to the health centre on the 17th of April. However, the GP this day delayed those blood tests, saying that they may be shut because of the Easter Bank holidays. He left the house uh, with a message for us to phone him if Robert deteriorated or vomited again, and he would then be admitted to hospital. The next day, Robbie wanted to go from his bed to the toilet, but couldn't do it himself, so my wife assisted him. As she got into the bathroom holding Robbie up, he, he fainted and slipped through her hands. I telephoned the GP practice again and said that my 10-year-old son Robbie had fainted. I was asked if he's still unconscious. I said, I don't know that he was upstairs with his mum, but I needed a doctor straight away. The doctor arrived was the same doctor that had seen Robbie on the 6th of April. By the time she arrived, Robert had gained consciousness. He couldn't see his mum. He said, mummy, I can't see you. Oh, I can see you now. He dilated pupils and his lips were mauve. And sadly, at that time, I didn't recognise the seriousness of those symptoms.
the GP examined Robbie and said that she couldn't find anything wrong with him other than a throat infection that had gone to his chest. She refused to admit Robbie to hospital but prescribed medication, even though I told her that the doctor the day before, her senior partner, had said that Robert should be admitted to hospital if he deteriorates or he vomits continually. Well, I then phoned the hospital in Morriston, where Robert had been earlier. I asked them specific. I told them exactly what had happened in April. Sorry, in the December, which I don't. I don't imagine they would have recalled him. But I told them everything that had happened and how worried we were at that time and how seriously ill he was, and that the doctors had seen him all week or over the last two weeks, and they haven't sent him to hospital. And he fainted that day. And she said, "Believe in the GP." If you bring the child to the hospital, you can't come to Ward 7 where he was and you have to go to accident emergency. So the best way to see the child again would be to call the GP. So we did that. Uh, after discussing Robbie's case with the hospital, I telephoned the health centre again and requested the doctor attend for Robbie. The same GP that had come in earlier that day, she arrived. She refused to admit Robbie to hospital and I had a heated argument with her. I said, look at the state of my wife. We really worried about Robbie. We want him admitted. We also said that we'd phoned the hospital and after an argument, the doctor agreed to admit Robbie. After the doctor agreed to refer Robbie to hospital, I went upstairs to wrap him ready for what I believe was an ambulance. When I came downstairs, my sister was present with my wife. The doctor was writing out a referral letter. I asked her, have you ordered an ambulance? And with that, she slid the referral letter across to me on my breakfast bar. I said, no, take him by car. She then stormed out of the house. I then went upstairs uh, and carried Robbie down into the back of my car. And both my wife and I took him to hospital. As we were driving to Morrison Hospital, which is a half hour run because it's 12 miles from my home, Robert was going to sleep, we thought. He was actually lapsing in and out of consciousness. And when we got to hospital, I carried him in. And as soon as the, the nurses and the doctors seen him, there was emergency treatment. I looked at Robbie. My wife nearly fainted and was taken out of the room because of the panic of the nurses and doctors. I, I, I stayed in the room. And next minute, I looked at Robbie. His mouth is wide open. His eyes are fixed in the back of his head. He's not breathing. I shouted, Robbie, Robbie. There was no response, and I was told to leave the room. They tried to resuscitate him, but he never regained consciousness, and he died shortly after. Thank you. Thank you for that. I, you know, what it must take you to repeat that story is unimaginable, and we're we're very privileged to to hear this this account, and it's it's appalling. So thank you very much indeed for that. And you must have told it thousands of times in a way that hasn't yet made any difference. So that's important. I will say one thing, though, Mr. Behrens, that the difference to what happened to Robbie and our fight for justice was changed when DCI Pool came from West Midlands Police. As I mentioned earlier, we didn't know that Robert had been suspected of Addison's or that the ACTH test was needed. Yeah. But Robert's death was then reported to the coroner Initially, I gave authorization for a post-mortem, a hospital post-mortem, 
But it was pretty obvious from the medical records that Robbie had died of Addison's disease because his abnormal electrolytes that were taken in December of 89, when Addison's was suspected, were almost identical to the ones on the night of death. So they must have known that Addison's was suspected, although they deny this. Yeah. But what happened was it went to the coroner. I told the coroner the history, the coroner's officer. I told him what I just told you. Maybe not as concisely because at that time we were devastated with grief. But I did tell him how many times the doctors had seen the child and how he died that night. I said I wanted an inquest and I said if I didn't get one, I may request a second post-mortem. Because on Robbie's deathbed, I promised him that I would find out what went wrong. Because I knew that night that Robbie should never have died, irrespective of what he died of. It should never have happened at that particular time. The coroner then ordered a post-mortem. The pathologist omitted from the post-mortem report that Addison's disease was suspected. It was also omitted that the ACTH test had been ordered, but not done. The pathologist referred to Robbie as having been normally nourished, and yet the child died of critical dehydration that had caused low blood pressure and a heart attack, which was fatal. Also, one of the doctors on the night that Robbie died, who attended to him, said he had the appearance of a child from a concentration camp, and he'd never seen anything like it, as did the other doctors. So for the pathologist to say he was normally nourished clearly was untrue. The pathologist omitted the history of the lead up to Robbie's death from the post-mortem report and omitted the suspicion of Addison's disease and that the paediatrician had also requested an ACTH test, which hadn't been done. Had it been done, Robbie would have been diagnosed and received appropriate treatment that would have saved his life. On the day I was told that Robbie had died of Addison's disease by the coroner's officer, the GP who had seen Robbie the day before and was the senior partner of the practice, phoned up and wanted to speak to us. When we came to the house, both my sisters were in the front room with me. I pre-warned them that whatever you do, please do not interfere with my discussion with this doctor because it must be difficult for him seeing Robbie the day before and coming up to see us now that he's passed away. So when he came into the, the room, in my front room, my sister, two sisters and I were there, one of the questions I asked him at the beginning was, did Robert have to die? And he said, no. Well, at that, my sisters became upset, naturally, and I had to ask them to leave the room. So they had to go, and I was with the doctor. He started telling me about what Addison's disease is. And to be honest, at that particular time, I wasn't interested in what it is just whether or not he needed to die, and that had been confirmed that he did not. When the GP came to the house, he had Robert's medical records. I asked to see them. A fairly thin file, hardly any documents in there. I turned over a page, and what does it say? I typed letter, quote, information needs ACTH test, parents informed. I said, what the hell is this test? I know nothing about it. Oh, it's a hospital test. It's a hospital test. I read on and I read that Addison's disease had been suspected and that Robert had had a hormonal imbalance. Well, with that, I now knew that they had been put on notice of Addison's, that they'd been told about the need for the test and it hadn't been done. 
And it also stated in the letters or the discharge documents that Robert should be immediately referred back to the hospital if he became unwell. And they clearly hadn't done it. After I read the GP records, the, the doctor then left. I thought my friend said to tell him about the Addison's letter and the test and the suspicion of Addison's disease. I asked him if he would witness the medical records with me. He said, I'm your best friend, Will. If these people are going to alter it and cover up, they will attempt to discredit me simply because I am your best friend. I'd watched a case about a little boy called Alfie Wynn, who died before Robbie, and there'd been allegations of neglect. And when the doctor had um, examined the child, he'd asked the child who'd meningitis to open his mouth. The child couldn't do it. And the doctor allegedly said, you can't open your mouth, I can't be bothered to examine you. And I'd seen the story about that case and the mother's concerns. And I think she assaulted the doctor. But in any event, we thought there was a possibility of cover-up. So yeah. Sid advised me to get someone, a professional, if I knew, to witness these records. So I'd seen him on the 20th of April, which was a Friday. Three doors down from me lived a reverend, the Reverend Thomas, now deceased, sadly. And he was actually born in the house that he lived in, so he had known my family, he'd known my grandparents who lived in the house I live in now, and he knew my family, my father and his siblings. And he came to the house to tell me that Robbie used to come and see him and brush his dogs, and then he was so sorry about Robbie's death. So I asked him, and he was also an academic, he was a lecturer, as I understand, at Oxford University, as well as being a reverend. So I asked him if he would witness the records. So on the 23rd of April, which was the Monday following the Friday, that I'd seen the medical records, this being six days after Robbie's death, I asked the Reverend Thomas to come into my home at 1.45pm. I invited the GP who had brought the records the previous Friday to come at 2pm. And he comes in with the medical records and I ask him, and did Robert have to die? He said no. And he said, I've got to be careful what I say because the Reverend Thomas has taken notes, and that's what I'd asked him to do, was to take notes of the conversation, and I want him to record what he read in the medical records. When the GP arrived, I actually asked him for Robert's medical records. I gave them to the Reverend Thomas, and he took a note that confirmed the Addison's letter existed. I made my complaint then on the 30th of April, which was 13 days after Robbie died, and I waited six months to receive copies of the medical records. And when I received them, the Addison's letter has gone. And it's never been investigated. And the CPS have recently claimed that it never existed. There's no evidence to prove its existence. Yet, I have two QCs, one a judge now. I've got an experienced DCI who was involved in the Lawrence case. I've got a journalist of 40, 50 years, all saying, with the evidence I presented to them, that the Addison's letter did exist or in any event, there's strong evidence that it existed. Okay, so at that point, Mr. Powell, I mean, say, obviously you've, you've you've alluded to the CPS, but, but, you know, following these, you know, terrible events, you've had to be involved with a number of organisations, the NHS, the police, the Crown Prosecution Service, the Welsh Office, and the Parliamentary and Health Service Ombudsman, the Independent Police Complaints Commission, the General Medical Council and other public bodies as well. Can you describe what it's been like having to deal with all these organisations in order to get justice? Well, 
as I said, I complained uh, 13 days after Robbie's death. And in December of 1990, we had a medical services committee by West Glamorgan Family Health Service Authority. At that uh, hearing was a chairman who I found out later was a magistrate. There was two general practitioners and there was two lay people on that committee hearing my complaint. Well, I couldn't have been treated worse by the chairman had I murdered Robbie. He was so rude. He prevented me from asking questions. I'd asked one doctor one question, and when I, asked, I went to ask a second, he asked if anybody else in the room wished to question the doctor. I put my hand up politely. I said, sir, I haven't finished questioning this doctor. He said, you've already asked one question. I said, are you telling me, sir, that I'm only allowed to ask these doctors one question? Don't be frivolous with me, or you will have to leave this room, and we'll deal with your written evidence only. Now, that was the tone of the meeting all the way through. The man was rude. He didn't want to listen to any of my evidence, and he believed the doctor's his evidence, even although it was clearly untrue. But the positive thing is, two of the GPs agreed that he was so badly treated that they wanted to leave the room. So it had been advised by their advisor at the Medical Protection Society to say nothing. And it was just appalling, to be honest. I broke my heart. It, I came out of that with my good friend Sid Herbert and Sid had to grab my hand at one time because I really felt like tipping the table. And he grabbed me tight to say, Will, and I did. And I wasn't rude. I, I, I believe I acted with dignity. And I told Sid after, I'll never, ever be spoken to in that manner by anyone. And I don't care who it is. I don't care if there's one of them or 20 of them. They will never, ever speak to me that way. And then it, to, to, the, the result of that inquiry was that only Dr. Flower was in breach of the terms and conditions of service, even though I presented evidence of untruths. A referral letter was typed after death, backdated. The five GPs had said the referral had been made, but in fact it wasn't typed till after Robbie died. And all that evidence came out. The evidence of the missing Addison's disease was given by the Reverend Thomas. It was totally ignored. Everything that I said was ignored. And Dr. Flower was given the minimal reprimand. And that was to conform with the terms and conditions of service from now on. And, and that was that. I appealed to the Welsh office. I was allowed legal representation. The hearing was listed for three days, which wasn't sufficient. It cost me £34,000 to be represented by a barrister, solicitor, and medical expert because I really wanted to get the truth out. Uh, the hearing was heard three days. It was adjourned. The Welsh office had you provided. They had um, introduced Robert's original GP records as evidence because I'd had them forensically tested and they'd been sent by my forensic document examiner to the Welsh office by recorded delivery six days before the hearing started. So the Welsh office controlled both the original GP records and the original hospital records. But when the matter was adjourned for six months, and I believe it was tactically adjourned so that the doctors could hear all our evidence, and then their lawyers can work on a way to discredit me and any of my witnesses. So we went back six months later, and we found out that the original GP records had been altered. Additional documents that had come from the GPs were added into the notes that had never been disclosed to me. And I'd had copies four times. And I had uh, 
check the copies with the originals personally. So these additional documents were added while the medical records should have been in the custody of the Welsh office. Now the Welsh office admitted that they had the hospital originals, but they said they did not have the GP records, that they'd never received them, and that, as far as they were concerned, Will Powell had introduced them as evidence or his legal team, which we can prove wasn't true because they were sent to the Welsh office a week before by the forensic document examiner. So we, when we found this out, we wanted to identify where the records had been. The chairman refused to investigate. And the interesting thing is, before we entered the room of the reconvened hearing, someone had put the original GP records, sorry, the original hospital records, which were loose, inside the GP folder. And they'd placed on our side of the room before we entered. So there's no way that we could have had them because someone at the Welsh office had put them there. And then when the Welsh office denied having the GP records, we then said, well, you know, they came to, to light from our side of the room and they must have been with the Welsh office, but they then denied having them. They said that they'd done and for three years, the Welsh office has denied that they received Robert's GP records. We eventually proved that they had it was in an inquiry called the Elizabeth Elias Inquiry, or the Elias Inquiry. She didn't deal with the medical records of where they had been, and the whole thing's been covered up ever since, and that issue's never been dealt with. So that was my complaints procedure. I went to the parliamentary ombudsman, Mr. Behrens, to one of your predecessors. They told me that they would look at it, but we had to complain first through my MP to the Welsh office, which we did. Then your predecessor said it's outside his jurisdiction, he can't look at it. And yet in 1997, he agreed to look at it. And in 1999, I had the finding of uh, maladministration against the Welsh office. But your predecessor didn't recommend that inquiry should be reopened. And although one of the staff had suggested that he should look at where these medical records had been, so unfortunately, although we had a finding of maladministration and there was an order for them to pay my costs, which they previously denied, it was pretty disappointing that the request for the public inquiry, or for the, re the hearing, sorry, the appeal hearing to be reconvened. There are so many alarming elements that you, you have told us about, including the actions of my office, which I'm not disputing in any way. I'm, I met Mr. Sid Herbert in 2017, a magnificent man who's been a, a strong ally of yours. And I've heard about the Reverend Thomas, who was a good and honourable person, who seems to have been traduced because he was an independent witness confirming the existence of the Addison disease letter that, that you're talking about. So for him to be traduced is disgraceful. Then you go on to describe the other things that happened. And just before we move on from that, you also have evidence of a police cover-up on the investigation of, of some of these matters. Could you tell us briefly about that, please? I, I can, but I'd just like to say also that when the Reverend Thomas gave evidence at the Welsh Office Appeal in 1992 under oath, it was implied he was a paedophile, that he was abusing Robbie. And the reason that they came to that conclusion was, and if you remember earlier, the Reverend Thomas came to me to say that Robert used to call in his house and brush his dogs. We yeah. didn't know that. So they tried to say, well, you're a bachelor, your sister's a spinster, 
how many children come to your house without the authority of the parents. But they could see that I was getting quite angry because I knew what they were getting at, and they dropped it. But they've yeah. also said in their caution, under, when they were interviewed under caution, one doctor said that they suspected him of this type of a crime, which is absolutely disgusting, and that's how low yeah. they would go. So I thought it's worth mentioning that because it's in light of what you've said about his credibility. So in 90, it was November 1993 when your predecessor refused to investigate my complaint against the Welsh office, so I decided to go to the police. So we got in touch with the Director of Public Prosecution and they advised us to make a complaint to David Powers Police, which was a local police force. My barrister, solicitor and myself, we did a file of evidence, 22 pages, with copious statements, affidavits from the Reverend Thomas, affidavits from Sid, affidavits from everybody that was involved in anything of relevance in relation to the falsification of the records. And what we didn't know at that time was David Powers Police actually retained the GPs under investigation as police surgeons. So the evidence was submitted. It was shared with the CPS. Um, after two years, there was a decision that there was insufficient evidence to prosecute. The police refused to get Robert's computer records, which would have confirmed the authenticity of the substituted documents or otherwise. I know it would have proven the Addison's letter existed. The police refused to get that evidence. And when I tried to get it, the health authority, which was West Glamorgan at the time, actually deleted all Robert's computer records intentionally, only to keep the demographic details. So after the two years, the case was thrown out. Uh, I had a meeting with the CPS in November of 1996. I gave them more evidence again, which they ignored. And then in 1999, or 98, beg your pardon, I made a formal complaint against the Deputy Chief Constable because he was ignoring my concerns. And he then sent the head of CID, who had been involved in the case previously, and had actually given the doctors on the 13th of May 1996 an immunity letter telling them that they'll never be prosecuted. So in response to my complaint, I then had a second criminal investigation between 1999 in 2000, it was obvious they would pay me lip service. I then made a complaint against the Chief Constable. In April, of April May 2000, I get a meeting with the then Deputy Chief Constable of David Powers Police, and he calls in the late DCI pool. As a consequence of DCI pool's involvement, there was a third criminal investigation that suggested 35 criminal charges, gross negligent manslaughter, forgery, attempting to pervert the course of justice and conspiracy to pervert the course of justice. The CPS agreed in 2003 there was sufficient evidence to prosecute Dr. Williams, uh, Mrs. Sims, the secretary, in regard with regards to the referral letter that was typed post-death and backdated, and also Dr. Flower because she admitted writing her consultation notes several weeks after Robbie's death when the original GP records should have been sent back to Powers Family Practitioners Committee. So they have a contract that's under the terms and condition of contract that when a patient dies, they have to send their medical records back within a month. These doctors kept them for over six months and altered them in the interim. Following Bob Poole's criminal investigation, which took two years, 
between 2000 and 2002. He set out 35 potential criminal charges, some of which were alternative charges. The evidence was presented to the Crown Prosecution Service, who decided that there was sufficient evidence to charge two doctors and a secretary for forgery and pervert the course of justice. However, the reason they were not prosecuted was because of the passage of time. And also, the police had given the doctors a letter saying that they would never be prosecuted. Now, the passage of time had been caused by my four years in relation to the complaints procedure, which was the Medical Services Committee hearing, the Welsh Office, and my request for the investigation into the maladministration by the Parliamentary Ombudsman. So that took us four years. I then made the complaint in, in March 1994 to the police. They ignored it for six years, they, and the CPS ignored the evidence. Then when Bob Poole finally gets the evidence, it always was there. And this is what's worrying the government, I think, with Robbie's case. I can prove the evidence was there. I gave it to these people. They choose to ignore it. But that passage of time, I cannot be blamed for that passage of time. It's an NHS... To those people who don't quite understand the detail of this, DCI Poole was not part of the, the Welsh Police Service, was he? He was well, external. And I think you need to just explain that a little bit, please. Oh, thank you. I think it's just the point that it's not just the Welsh Police here. It's a review into the investigation by a police officer from another force as well. Yes, that's what I was going to come to. That's the second investigation. The first one was a criminal investigation into the GPs. Following a complaint that I made against the chief constable, I eventually had a meeting with David Powers Police, with the then chief constable, in April, May of 2000. And he agreed to have the case reviewed by an English police officer from West Midlands Police. And that was the DCI pool, now deceased. And what a man he was. I couldn't thank him enough for what he did for my family. He lifted such a weight off of my shoulders because everyone was denying what these doctors had done. And here he comes along and tells me he's appalled by the way that we've been treated and the fact that this evidence has been ignored for so long. Thank you for that. And sadly, he died, but he didn't die before he passed on the, the critical information that bolsters the, the case for the inquiry. So that's that's important too. Yes, um, Okay, thank you. I, I, I want to move on just a little bit. Nick, I'd like you to ask about the duty of candour in all this because, uh, you know, this is a critical issue which we want to hear Mr Powell's view about, please. Sure, well, I know that Mr Powell's campaign um, to get answers and justice were catalysts for the introduction of uh, a duty of candour. Do you feel, Mr Powell, that that duty goes far enough and what, in your opinion, needs to change in order to make the NHS more open and transparent to improve patient safety? Well, firstly, I'd like to explain to you how the absence of a legal duty of candour came about. We had sued both Morrison Hospital for negligence and the five GPs. In June of 1996, the trial was set for six weeks. And I was hoping that after the police had just refused I've said there was insufficient evidence to prosecute, that this trial would have changed things for me. A month before the trial, 
West Glamorgan Health Authority admitted liability and paid £80,000 into court. They'd already tried to settle out of court, which we refused. The GPs then made an application to the court saying that they didn't owe the Powell family a duty of care in relation to the psychological damage they had caused us after Robbie had died. And that was in relation to the cover-up. And I think there's a lot of publicity about this now, how patients of bereaved families and parents are damaged by the cover-up. On top of the loss of your child, you're then facing a cover-up. And it's very, very difficult times because I was suicidal. My wife was suicidal. And it's difficult to put into words how it affects not only me and my wife, but every parent and every bereaved family when doctors tell untruths. So in any event, that because the hospital admitted liability, it puts in a difficult position. But the GPs then made an application to the court to strike out the case against them. And it went to the court. And the case, when you have a strikeout or an application to strike out, the judge has to presume that the pleaded case would be proven. And our case was that the doctors were negligent and they'd caused Robbie's death, that they'd lied and falsified records post-death, and that in turn had caused my wife and I psychological damage. Well, the court ruled that the doctors did not have a legal duty of candor because once Robbie died, there was no duty to Diane and I to tell us the truth. So we asked for a right to appeal, which was granted by the High Court judge. The £80,000 compensation was kept by the court because we were then forced to accept the, the, the compensation but it was kept by the court. A year later, we have an appeal, and the appeal is unsuccessful, and the £80,000 that we paid in compensation was taken in costs. And what's important here is they attempted to settle out of court, and the case was estimated at £300,000. That was for our damage psychologically and my loss of earnings. And in the end, I lost 25 years of work and we've received nothing, no compensation whatsoever for that loss. So in any event, we, we asked the Court of Appeal, they made it perfectly clear that it, there's no freestanding duty of candour for doctors. So we asked to appeal to the House of uh, Lords, the, House, the Court of Appeal refused. We then petitioned the House of Lords, they threw the case out, we took it to Europe, and in 2000 we have a clear interpretation of the law and it goes like, as the law stands now, however, doctors do not have to tell parents the truth about the negligent death of their child or refrain from falsifying records. And therefore, the, the absence of the duty of candour was proven in the UK courts and the Court of Appeal. And had we not done that, because they wouldn't have been, it wouldn't have been on the table for discussion because nobody knew there was no legal duty of candour. So that's what I my, and my wife resent, is that we've never really been given the credit for the sacrifice we made to get this issue on the table. And that's Thank why you. I feel sad that the Welsh Committee, the, the Welsh Health Committee, has never invited me to speak. Because I don't think people understand what this, how, how Robbie's case failed. And it's fairly simple. They're saying it didn't matter what those doctors did after Robbie died. It doesn't matter what damage they caused us. The powers are not entitled to compensation for that damage. And there's something wrong with the law. And it doesn't go far enough because what we had, as you will know, in 2014, 
was a legal duty of candor for NHS organisations. Well, although that goes some way to addressing the issues of dishonesty, we need an individual legal duty of candor. We need people to take doctors to court individually if they lie, falsify records and psychologically damage patients. Because even today, that can't happen. But what I will say is that's very important. There was a case recently where parents who lost a baby have been awarded £2.8 million compensation. And that is in relation to post-death damage as well. And that's because the organisation didn't tell the truth. So at least some good has come from that and that that family has at least had compensation that we were refused. Okay, thank you for that. We're coming towards the end of our transmission, but there's some key issues that I want to ask you about. I mean, no one listening to this can be other than appalled by what has happened. And your steadfastness in keeping this going is just remarkable. So I want to ask you, what keeps you going? Because you you spent 30 years and more seeking justice on this. Nick and I are latecomers, so we're strongly in support of you. But what, what has kept you going all this time? Well, the promise I made to Robbie on his deathbed, I would find out what went wrong. Yeah. And what's sad is it's destroyed my family. I've also lost a middle son. And that's um, collateral damage. That is collateral damage. He became an alcoholic. His his family life, which was happy, and his older brother's family life, we were all happy. And it destroyed that. Yeah, and he went into an alcoholic. And it's, it, it breaks our heart, though, that, that this has happened. And not only to us, it's other families. It's happening to everybody. The doctors don't tell the truth. And there's no system at the moment to investigate this. And yeah. I feel sad that I appreciate what you're doing for me. You're calling for a public inquiry. But I also know that there's so many people still dissatisfied with the Ombudsman's office. I can't judge that because I don't know what evidence is presented. But what's difficult for me is that in 2004, I had a letter from your predecessor, Anne Abraham, apologising for the appalling way that I was treated, for the derogatory comments that were made about me, and that I was promised that things are going to change. And how many years ago is that? 2004, is that 18 years ago? And I know you're doing your best, and I appreciate that, but people criticise me because I'm accepting your offer to help me. People are saying, oh, but they haven't helped me, they've done this, they've done that. They haven't investigated. We need a proper system to fully investigate complaints. For argument's sake, there's a conflict of evidence. That's what happens. The complainant makes a complaint. I think there should be two chronologies. I think there should be the chronology of the family or the bereaved parent, and there should be a chronology from the doctors or the health board. And then we should look to see what's in conflict. And in Robbie's case, a perfect example was that I told the doctor, and my wife did, that Robbie was vomiting. He prescribed the Oralite for the vomiting. He later denied that Robert had vomited, and he omitted the fact that he gave and prescribed the Oralite, the very medication for that condition. And yet we were never believed. So I think you have to do two statements, and I think you have to address the conflicts of interest in a better way that you're doing it now. Well. I hear what you say, and I'm not going to apologise for supporting your 
call for a public inquiry, which I think is evidence-based, and this is one of the big scandals of, of the century. I mean, what is disappointing is that for neither Nick nor me, we've had a positive response from people in a position to make the decision to hold an inquiry. And following on from that, I've also raised with the Cabinet Office the weakness of the current arrangement for setting up inquiries, which are very difficult to understand and are capable of very variable interpretation, as we've seen from ministerial decisions. And I don't think that inspires public confidence. And I know that you were part to, party to a group advising HSIN, which came to pretty much the same conclusion some years ago about the need to create special arrangements for situations like the one that you described. So we have to, to keep fighting for that. But, you know, as we end, um, and we're not giving up on this, but what advice would you give to people in a similar situation to the one that you experienced in, in 1990? Well, to be honest, uh, Mr. Behrens, I don't think anybody has been treated a lot worse than we have over the years in light of the evidence that we have. Yeah. All they can tell people to do is you have to complain and you have to make your complaint clear. You have to be 100% honest, which is one of the reasons I think that I say I beat them. I haven't really beat them because I've had no justice. But because I haven't exaggerated and I haven't tried to make things worse than they actually were, then they find it difficult to discredit me because my evidence has been the same from day one. And I would yeah. just suggest that whoever makes a complaint ensures that they try and get their facts. And remember, it isn't easy when you've lost a child or a loved one to sit down and, and relive all these things that's happened. And I think that we should give a statement of truth, and I think that should be signed. And that should be a legal document that if you have intentionally told untruths about a doctor, then there should be consequences. And then on the other hand, when the doctor responds, they should provide a statement of truth. And if they have told untruths in that, they should have consequences for their dishonesty. And at the moment, that doesn't happen. There's no deterrent to actually deal with dishonest doctors because the GMC, as you will know, threw Robbie's case out, engaging the five-year rule. Yeah. Nick, have you got anything that you want to ask Mr Powell as a final uh, question? Well, I just want to thank Mr Powell, really. I think... Um, you know, even after 30 years, clearly, you know, this is, is it is so tragic and, and upsetting to hear what happened uh, to Robbie. So I'm, I'm very grateful to you for, for sharing with us that today. And, and I hope that, you know, through this podcast, we can reach uh, a lot more people and sustain the momentum for making sure you get the public inquiry that you feel that Robbie deserves. Thank you very much, both. I appreciate that very much. So. Thank you, Mr. Powell. It's, it's been an illuminating conversation and we're very grateful to you for the clarity and uh, the passion, the controlled passion with which you've displayed today. And we wish you and your wife continued good health to keep the campaign going. We're supporting you absolutely on this and we hope to get better news in the coming months. So this is Rob Behrens. Wishing everyone a good day and signing off from Radio Ombudsman. Thank you for listening to Radio Ombudsman. We would love to know what you think, so please leave a review or comment. If you like what you hear, please share and subscribe to future episodes.